Welcome to Village Mentality, where melanated people are connected in spirit, love, and community. What's up, kings and queens? Beautiful people everywhere. It's your girl, CK McGee, and I am your host. How's everybody doing? I pray that you are all doing well. I know that I am. Thank you for asking. You know, Village, I just recently celebrated another birthday. Yes. And I feel grateful to everyone who showed me love, whether it was in person or on social media. I'm grateful to my mom for giving me life and for being with me as I continue my life's journey. One of the things that I always ask my mother to do for my birthday is to tell me how I arrived here in this world. You know, my grand entrance. <laughs> the story grows each year as we allow our imaginations about certain details to run away with us. And we always end up laughing heartily as she shares the story with me each year. Now, for some people, it's not a birthday without a cake. And although I did get one this year and it was yummy, it's not my birthday until I get my story. <laughs> so thank you all again for all of your birthday wishes. You really know how to make a gal feel special. Now Village, if you recall last week, I was telling you all about a special that aired on BET called Eight minutes, 46 seconds. Well, I see that it was on again this past weekend on CBS. If you have not had a chance to watch it, please see if you can go to like on demand or maybe you have a streaming service that may have it available because it's really nice when we can have a change of pace and we can get to see other parts of us represented in the hearts and minds of those who are creating this content. So definitely, if you get a chance, please go and check it out. Okay, beautiful people, it's time to take my first walk for the evening to my musical jukebox. Now, with so much going on in our world, this next song seemed appropriate in giving us things to think about at the village. So up first is a song that was written and produced by the singer, along with her husband, Swizz Beats, Mark Batson, and Harold Lilly. The song debuted on this artist's Facebook page on September 8, 2014, accompanied by a text post explaining their motivation and inspiration for the song. An up-tempo ballad, this song describes the singer's frustration with both national and international issues including the conflict between Israel and Gaza and the outbreak of the Ebola virus, as well as problems with education and gun laws in the United States. This song launched a movement and it addresses some of the social issues that we are facing in this world, like poverty and oppression, rights for women and children, environmental activism, improving gay rights, fighting racial inequity in the American justice system, and so on. So without further ado, here's Alicia Keys with We Are Here. 
is why we are here, why we are here, we are here. Bombs over Baghdad, trying to get something we never had. Let's start with a good dad, so real but it's so sad. And while we burning this incense, we gon' pray for the innocent. Cause right now it don't make sense. Right now it don't make sense. Let's talk about Chi-Town. Let's talk about Gaza. Let's talk about, let's talk about Israel. Cause right now with Israel. Let's talk about, let's talk Nigeria. In a mass hysteria. Yeah, our souls are brought together so that we could love each other, brother. We Say the nation, we're not support for education. Cause right now it don't make sense. Right now it don't make sense. Let's talk about our part. My heart touch your heart. Let's talk about, let's talk about living. Had enough of dying, not what we all about. Let's do more giving, do more forgiving. Yeah, our souls are brought together so that we could love each other, sister. We
That song was from his third studio album. Yes, American R&B musician and songwriter, Babyface. The album was released on August 24th, 1993. It reached number 16 on the US Billboard 200, and it was number two on the top R&B albums chart. The album received a nomination in the category of Best Male R&B Vocal Performance at the 36th Grammy Awards. And at that same ceremony, Babyface won the Grammy Award for Producer of the Year in non-classical music. On January 29th, 1997, the album was certified three times platinum by the Recording Industry Association of America. Well, Village, you know me. I like to take a little bit of time to talk about some things, whether it be about current events, entertainment, or something that's just on my mind. So why don't we get into a segment called Let's Talk About It. So tell me, Village, have you all ever heard of the Harlem Hellfighters? Well, neither have I. So why don't we go ahead and learn together? Now, the 369th Infantry Regiment, commonly referred to as the Harlem Hellfighters, was an infantry regiment of the New York Army National Guard during World Wars I and II. The regiment consisted mainly of African-Americans, though it also included several Puerto Rican-Americans during World War II. With the 369th Infantry, it was known for being one of the first African-American regiments to serve with the American Expeditionary, excuse me, Expeditionary Forces during World War I. Now the regiment was nicknamed the Black Rattlers. The nickname Men of Bronze was given to the regiment by the French and Hellfighters by the Germans. So during World War I, the regiment spent 191 days in frontline trenches more than any other American unit. They also suffered the most losses of any American regiment with 1,500 casualties. On October 5th, 1917, Emmett J. Scott, who was the longtime secretary to Booker T. Washington, was appointed special assistant to Newton B. Baker, the secretary of war. Scott, was to serve as a confidential advisor in situations that involved the well-being of 10 million African-Americans and their roles in the war. And while many African-Americans who served in the Great War believed racial discrimination would dissipate once they returned home, guess what? That did not happen. Racism after World War I was probably at its worst until the start of World War II. You know, I find that truly amazing that even after African-Americans, formerly enslaved people, turned around and actually fought and died in service to this country, and yet its bigotry and hatred intensified. Wow. I mean, just think about that. Mm. Now, although many African-Americans were eager to fight in the war, 
they were often turned away from military service. When the United States realized that it did not have close to enough soldiers, it decided to pass the Selective Service Act of 1917, which required all men from the ages of 21 to 30 to register for the draft. This included African-Americans as well. Now, this could give African-Americans the opportunity that they needed to try and change the way that they were perceived by their white compatriots, okay? Um, but of course, like we just heard, it, it didn't, regardless of what they did. Now, let's talk about the regiment's assignment to the French army, which happened like in 1918. The U.S. Army decided on April 8th of 1918 to assign the unit to the French Army for the duration of American participation in the war because many white American soldiers refused to perform combat duty with African Americans. Here we are in the midst of war and you're still worried about the color of our skin. That's amazing. The men were issued French weapons, helmets, belts, and pouches although they did continue to wear their U.S. uniforms. While in the United States, the 369th was subjected to intense racial discrimination and its members looked down upon. French Colonel J. La Lenard of the American Expeditionary um, Forces, excuse me, the, the headquarters, they, they were persuaded to write the notorious pamphlet, Secret Information Concerning Black American Troops which actually warned French civilian authorities of the alleged inferior nature and supposed racist, te racist tendencies of African-Americans. So apparently <laughs> the U.S., after all this was said and done, decided that they needed to like release a pamphlet warning the French about our, inferior our inferiority and the fact that we were racist. I just, I cannot. Wow. Now in France, 369th, they were treated as if they were no different than any other French unit. For the most part, the French did not show hatred towards them and did not racially segregate the infantry at all. The French accepted the all black 369th regiment with open arms and welcomed them to their country. The French army had from the start included many colonial units with non-white personnel from among others like Morocco and Senegal. Also, since they faced manpower shortages, they were less concerned with race than the Americans. How about that? Hmm. Now, I also read that one Medal of Honor and numerous distinguished service crosses were awarded to members of the regiment. Perhaps the most celebrated man in the 369th was Private Henry Johnson, a former Albany, New York rail station porter who earned the nickname Black Death for his actions in combat in France. In May of 1918, Johnson and Private Needham Roberts fought off a 24-man German patrol, though both were severely wounded. Johnson instructed Roberts to warn the French units of the approaching patrol, but Roberts returned to him after the Germans opened fire on their position. They battled together until a German grenade incapacitated Roberts, at which point Johnson made it his mission to hold the line and protect his fellow soldier. 
After they expended their ammunition, Johnson battled with grenades, then the butt of his rifle, and finally with a bolo knife. Reports suggest that Johnson killed at least four German soldiers and might have wounded 30 others while sustaining at least 21 injuries. Over 100 men from the 369th were presented with American and or French decorations. The 369th Regiment, the Hellfighters Band, were relied upon not just in battle, but also for morale. So by the end of their tour, they became one of the most famous military bands throughout Europe. They followed the 369th overseas and were highly regarded and known for being able to immediately boost morale. While overseas, the 369th Regiment made up less than 1% of the soldiers deployed, but was responsible for over 20% of the territory of all the land assigned to the United States. During the war, the 369th Band, which was under the direction of James Reese Europe, became famous throughout Europe. It introduced the until then unknown music called jazz to British, French, and other European audiences. I love that there's so many different forms of jazz uh, that I listen to. Like you can listen to jazz if you're working or studying. You can listen to jazz if you just wanna relax. Listen to jazz if you wanna like fall asleep. And there's just so many different variations of it. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful uh, and relaxing form of music. Now, <clears throat> at the end of the war, the 369th returned to New York City and on February 17, 1919, paraded through the city. This day became an unofficial holiday of sorts for all Harlem. Many African-American school children were dismissed from school so that they could attend the parade. With the addition of many adults, there were thousands of people that lined the streets to see the 369th. The parade began on Fifth Avenue at 61st Street, proceeded uptown past ranks of white bystanders, turned west on 110th Street, and then turned onto Lenox Avenue and marched into Harlem, where Black New Yorkers packed the sidewalks to see them. The parade became a marker of African-American service to the nation, a frequent point of reference for those campaigning for civil rights. The Congressional Medal, uh, excuse me, Congressional Gold Medal was awarded to the regiment in August of 2021. Yeah, just last month in recognition of their bravery and outstanding service during World War I. Now, see, this is what we're talking about, Village, when we, when we speak about the importance of knowing our history, right? I invite you all to take some time to really read about the Harlem Hellfighters. I just kind of like, sort of like gave you some tidbits of information about them, but there's like a whole lot more, um, especially their significance in the war and the things that they were able to accomplish that no other unit was. So I would suggest you go ahead and read that on your own. But it's just yet another example of how we contributed to not only the building of this country, but also how we fought for a country right alongside our white counterparts, whether they liked it or not. Um, we showed up and we continue to do that to this very day. September is National Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. And it's a time to raise awareness on this very stigmatized and often taboo topic. 
In addition to shifting public perception, this month is being used to spread hope and vital information to people affected by suicide. The goal is to ensure that individuals, friends, and families have access to the resources they need to discuss suicide prevention and to seek help. Suicidal thoughts, much like mental health conditions, can affect anyone regardless of age, gender, or background. In fact, suicide is often the result of an untreated mental health condition. Suicidal thoughts, although common, should not be considered normal and often indicate more serious issues. Throughout the month of September, NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness, will highlight their, quote, together for mental health, unquote, which encourages people to bring their voices together to advocate for better mental health care, including a crisis response system. NAMI wants any person experiencing suicidal thoughts or behaviors to have a number to call, a system to turn to that would connect them to the treatment and support that they need. So of course, with all this information, it's always important, right, for us to know what the warning signs are, because it can be really frightening if someone you love is talking about suicidal thoughts. And it can be even more frightening if you find yourself thinking about dying or giving up on life, right? Not taking these kinds of thoughts seriously can have devastating outcomes as suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Something, as I have mentioned before in the past, that one of my therapists used to say all the time, right? Anybody who talks about it, anybody who's thinking about it, it should all be taken seriously. You should never turn away or, you know, make somebody feel like they're a problem because they are talking. Allow them to do that, right? So according to the CDC, suicide rates have increased by 35% since 1999. More than 48,000 lives were lost to suicide in just 2018 alone. Comments or thoughts about suicide are also known as suicidal ideation, right? And those comments can be small, like somebody could say something like, I wish I wasn't here. Or, you know, nothing matters, right? But over time, then it can become more explicit and dangerous. So you definitely have to like, you know, pay attention if you start noticing someone talking like that, right? You got to pay attention. Now, here are um, some other warning signs of suicide, right? That people have it on their mind that they're thinking about it. You may notice an increased alcohol and drug use, aggressive behavior. You may notice that they are withdrawing from friends, family, and community. You might witness a dramatic mood swing, you know, dramatic mood swings. One time they're up and then they're really down or they can be very um, irritable and agitated and angry, you know. Impulsive or reckless behavior is something else that you might want to look out for. Now, suicidal behaviors are a psychiatric emergency. So if you or a loved one starts to take any of these steps that I'm about to talk about, you have to seek immediate help from a healthcare provider or call 911. If you start noticing someone collecting and saving pills or buying a weapon, that suddenly they're giving away possessions, tying up loose ends like organizing personal papers 
paying off debts. Or if you realize like, wait a minute, did they just say goodbye to me? You know, saying goodbye to friends and family. All of these things can be key factors in recognizing the warning signs of someone who is thinking about suicide. If you're unsure, even after you see any of these things, remember that a licensed mental health professional can help you to uh, assess these signs and they can, they can assist you in how to, you know, be supportive, to give effective support, right? Now, let's talk about some risk factors. Research has found that 46% of people who die by suicide had a known mental health condition. Several other things may put a person at risk of suicide, including these. There could be a, a family history of suicide. I think I mentioned to you all before, if you ever noticed, like if you're going to a medical doctor for the first time and they have you fill out all that paperwork, they wanna know your history of everything and not just of medical conditions, but they will ask about your mental health as well and what you, you know, what may have been going on in your family, right? Substance use. Drugs can create mental highs and lows that will worsen suicidal thoughts, okay? Intoxication. More than one in three people who die from suicide are under the influence of alcohol at the time of their death. They could have access to firearms. They may have a serious or chronic medical condition. Gender makes a difference, okay? Although more women than men attempt suicide, men are nearly four times more likely to die by suicide. And I think I read somewhere, it's been a long time, even the methods used, you know, during uh, suicide attempts tend to be more um, on the violent side when it comes to men versus women. Like these are just all things that, you know, we have to be aware of, uh, you know, and you can of course read about these things on your own as well, right? We're just starting the conversation and we just want you to be aware as much as possible about what to look for. And also there could be a history of trauma or abuse. There could be prolonged stress. Remember how we talked a few weeks ago about mental uh, exhaustion and that comes about because of prolonged stress and prolonged stress that goes untreated can, can become quite harmful to an individual. So again, it's about, you know, pay attention, paying attention and listening to, you know, what's being said by that person or even with what you may be feeling yourself, right? And also that person, that individual or yourself may have suffered a recent tragedy or loss. All of those kinds of things like, you know, the, the prolonged stress, the, the tragedy uh, uh, or loss, um, having a chronic medical condition, they could be considered triggers as well. Something that triggers thoughts of suicide if you're not, you're not doing well, if you're struggling with your mental health. So how do we support in a crisis, right? When a suicide-related crisis occurs, friends and family, they're often caught off guard, unprepared and unsure of what to do. The behaviors of a person experiencing a crisis can be unpredictable changing dramatically without warning because not everybody behaves the same way when they are thinking about suicide or when they are carrying out 
you know, the, the action of, of suicide. They're, not everybody does the same thing. You know, sometimes you hear on TV, you get the impression that one of the biggest ways that you're going to know is because somebody left a note. And all the attempts that I've ever made on my life, I, I've never left a note, you know? So there's a lot of, of, there's a lot to this and you just have to kind of know as much as you possibly can so that again, we can give that effective support, right? So there are a few ways to approach a suicide crisis as they call it. You can talk openly and honestly. Do not be afraid to ask questions like, do you have a plan for how you would kill yourself? I'm right on out and ask, okay? Remove means such as guns, knives, or stockpiled pills. Calmly ask simple and direct questions like, can I help you call your psychiatrist? If there are multiple people around, have one person speak at a time. Don't bombard them or overwhelm them with all of you talking at once, right? It's important to express support and concern. Don't argue, threaten, or raise your voice. Somebody who's in crisis. Don't debate whether suicide is right or wrong. That is not the time. It's not the time for it. Not, not in the midst of crisis. It's not the time for it. If you're nervous, try your best not to fidget or pace. Okay? Be patient. Like with any other health emergency, it's important to address a mental health crisis like suicide quickly and effectively. Unlike other health emergencies, mental health crisis doesn't have instructions or resources on how to help or what to expect, you know, like a Heimlich maneuver or CPR. That's why NAMI has created what they call Navigating a Mental Health Crisis. And it's a resource guide for those experiencing a mental health emergency. So that's something that you guys can actually look up if you want to see more about that. And, you know, with people experiencing mental health emergencies, their loved ones can now have some answers and information needed, um, you know, in order to once again, you know, be there and provide the support that's needed by their loved one who's in crisis, right? So if your friend or family member struggles with suicidal ideation day to day, let them know that they can talk with you about what they're going through. Make sure that you adopt an open and compassionate mindset when they're talking. Again, instead of arguing or trying to disprove any negative statements they make. You know, you don't wanna say things like, your life isn't that bad. You know, you really don't have anything to be that, you know, depressed about. I mean, come on, there's people out there who have it worse. No, no, no. You don't say those things. Try active listening techniques, such as reflecting their feelings and summarizing their thoughts, because this can help your loved one feel heard and validated. And that's what's most important throughout the whole experience, right? Let them know that mental health professionals are trained to help people understand their feelings and improve mental wellness and resiliency. Psychotherapy like cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy, those can help a person with thoughts of suicide recognize ineffective patterns of thinking and behavior. It can also help to validate their feelings and it can teach them some new coping skills, healthier coping skills. Suicidal thoughts 
are a symptom, just like any other, they can be treated and they can improve over time. I'm a witness. I'm still here. Okay. I'm definitely a witness to it. Suicide is not the answer. Even in the toughest of times, even in recent years, I've had to say that to myself. Suicide is not the answer. There is hope. There is hope. There is hope. And I keep saying that to myself as many times as I need to. I need y'all to hear that. And I need it to be said to you as well for anybody that may be out there struggling. There is hope. There is hope. Here's to brighter days. Now, this next song is a collaboration between this American singer and an American rapper. The song was released on December 11, 2014 by Columbia Records as the theme song from a 2014 film, which depicts an important historical event in Alabama in 1965. The featured rapper in this song also co-starred in the film as civil rights movement leader, James Bevel. The song won the award for best original song at both the 87th Academy Awards and the 72nd Golden Globe Awards in 2015, as well as the award for best song written for visual media at the 58th Annual Grammy Awards in 2016. Without further ado, here's John Legend featuring Common with Glory from the movie Selma, which portrays the 1965 march from Selma to Montgomery. And when we come back, I will get into today's topic. One day when the glory comes, it will be ours, it will be ours. Oh, one day when the war is won, we will be sure. the heavens no man no weapon formed against yes glory is destined everyday women and men become legends sins that go against our skin become blessings the movement is a rhythm to us freedom is like religion to us justice is juxtaposition in us justice for all just ain't specific enough one son died his spirit is revisiting us true and living living in us resistance is us that's why rosa sat on the bus that's why we walk through ferguson with our hands up when it go down we woman and man up they say stay down and we stand up shots we on the ground the camera panned up king pointed to the mountaintop and we ran up one day when the glory comes it will be ours it will be When the war is won, we will be sure, we will be sure, oh, glory, glory, oh, 
They march with the torch, we gon' run with it now Never look back, we done gone hundreds of miles From dark roads, heroes, to become a hero Facing the league of justice, his power was the people Enemy is lethal, a king became regal Saw the face of Jim Crow under a ball ego The biggest weapon is to stay peaceful We sing, our music is the cuts that we bleed through Somewhere in the dream we had an epiphany now we right the wrongs in history No one can win the war individually It take the wisdom of the elders and young people's energy Welcome to the story we call victory The coming of the Lord, my eyes have seen the glory One day, when the glory comes It will be ours, it will be village so today i would like to talk to you about the intentional act of segregation in schools now if you think that segregation in schools is something of the past well then i invite you to think again because it is very prevalent in our schools today the history of classroom segregation in the u.s reflects a nation's continuing legacy of racism and systemic racial inequality as recently as the 1950s, racial segregation in schools was the law of the land, more than six decades after the Supreme Court ruled that law to be unconstitutional, many schools are still heavily segregated and substantial disparities in school funding along racial lines remain. As educational leaders search for ways to close achievement gaps and innovate solutions to manage inequitable school funding, they must also confront an ever-growing issue, the resegregation of U.S. schools. Unfortunately, as in the past, 
The conditions of many schools today continue to separate the haves from the have-nots and further root marginalized groups in positions of disadvantage. Leaders in education continue to seek ways to ensure that students across all race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic backgrounds have equitable access to quality education. Now, this requires addressing the role classroom segregation plays in exacerbating disparities and developing teaching approaches that offset the negative impact of segregation in schools. So yeah, schools are still very much segregated to this day. Now let's just give you a brief history of classroom segregation. Now as early as the 1930s, members of the NAACP were looking for strategies to desegregate schools through lawsuits targeting the legal the legal doctrine of separate but equal. However, it was not until Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954 that the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously outlawed state-sanctioned school segregation, ruling it unconstitutional. From their inception, schools serving students of color received significantly less funding than schools serving white students and faced overcrowding, inadequate supplies, and insufficiently paid teachers. Such disparities resulted in gaps in the educational opportunities available to African-American and white communities. In 1950, only one in 10 black adults graduated from high school compared to four in 10 white adults. Especially hard hit were people living in states with a history of Jim Crow laws. African-American adults in Mississippi, Georgia, and other Southern states having an average of only about five years of schooling, right? Now, of course, you know, there was great resistance to integration. Once efforts to integrate schools began, campaigns directed by white community leaders and elected officials to resist and defy the Brown v. Board of Education rulings followed. One of the most famous examples occurred in 1957 when Arkansas Governor Orwell Eugene Fabus called upon the state's National Guard to block nine newly enrolled African-American students from entering Little Rock's Central High School. Yep, they were known as the Little Rock Nine. Now, another defiance of Brown versus the Board of Education ruling took place in Cleveland, Mississippi, where local officials devised schemes to stop desegregation by building schools and locations that kept African-American students in all Black schools and created dual residencies that allowed the school district to continue sending students to particular schools based on their race. I mean, just think about all the trouble people go through to hate all the energy that they disperse to hate, all the creativity and ingenuity to hate. It's incredible when you just think about it, you read about it, you hear about it, or of course, if you are actually experiencing it, all the effort it takes for them to keep us separate. And for what? Because of the color of our skin. Wow, I'm, oh, mm, mm, mm. 
And of course, you know, they come up with all kinds of ways to, you know, um, create this segregation. One of them is busing, right? Again, you think that these things are from like yesteryear, but nope, they still continue to this day. Nonetheless, proponents of integration pressed on, introducing programs and strategies to address the issue. One controversial strategy to end classroom segregation became known as busing. Now, these programs sought to close opportunity and achievement gaps and to make classrooms more diverse by busing students of color to white schools and busing white students to schools made up of students of color. However, many white parents, surprise, surprise, objected to the programs in fear that they would lose access to the better resourced schools. Well, I guess they're the only ones that need to have great material and great resources so that their children can learn. You know, forget everybody else, right? Because large numbers move their children to private schools or they move their families to suburban areas, this was a phenomenon known as white flight. African-American families shouldered a disproportionate burden in busing and other integration efforts. Some African-American families and political leaders also objected to busing programs on the grounds that they were too disruptive and failed to address deeper casual issues such as inequities in the housing market. I don't know how you call those issues casual, but okay. Now, what were some of the benefits of desegregation? Despite resistance to busing and other efforts aimed at desegregating schools, integration programs delivered meaningful educational opportunities to generations of Americans by helping to address funding inequities that exist between schools that are predominantly white and those that are predominantly not white or non-white. Consider the research of University of California, Berkeley economic um, professor Rucker Johnson, who studied the effects of court-ordered school desegregation on socioeconomic and health outcomes. Now he found that high school graduation rates for African-American students jumped by almost 15% when they attended integrated schools for five years. This attendance also decreased those students' chances of living in poverty as an adult by 11%. Such improvements correlated with greater access to school resources. Hmm. I mean, that would only stand to reason, don't you think? I mean, reason and logic, we have better school supplies, better resources, and then we also do better in school. Yeah, imagine that. Hmm. Johnson's research found the segregation plans effectively narrowed black-white gaps in per-pupil school, depending on the class size, right? However, any discussion of the benefits of busing should also acknowledge that the African-American students who were bused to previously all-white schools faced immeasurable hardships. Whatever positive outcomes resulted from access to greater resources or exposure to institutions that prepared them for predominantly white post-secondary and professional settings, they were gained in the face of widespread hostility and discrimination from white educators and students alike. Of course, it wasn't made easy for us. 
you know we're in these spaces that they don't want us to be but they weren't going to welcome us into those spaces you know they weren't going to enjoy that now basically the 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 field uh, the, the playing field was level because it's never been that it's never been the case that we have a level playing field they take everything they want everything for themselves these people that are, are so full of hate and to hell with what's going on with you or your family or what resources you're left with or how you're able to feed your family or if you're able to receive education or if you can get appropriate health care I mean who cares about all that as long as we have it all as long as we're taken care of right that's what people especially you know when we're talking about our history that's what they had to live with now even though it exists it's not as in your face but it's there if you just pay attention it's there right now integrated schools and achievement research from the national coalition on school diversity otherwise known as the ncsd found that integrated schools offer many advantages the coalition reports that integrated schools on average function at a higher level imagine that with greater parent involvement less teacher turnover and more and better quality resources students at integrated schools not only achieve at higher levels in math science language and reading but they also benefit in non-academic ways the ncsd citing research from several scholars lists the following among outcomes that are associated with attending integrated schools. So apparently there are decreased levels of racial and ethnic prejudice, improved ability to navigate multicultural environments. There's a break in stereotypes and fears about other races and ethnic groups passed down between generations. And there's better overall health and well-being. Well, I guess so. You know, if you're not just hearing misinformation passed down to you from generation to generation about how those people are wicked or evil or cruel or they're dangerous or they're savages or they're all of these things, but you actually have an opportunity to be around culturally diverse environments where you can actually learn from your for yourself that none of these things are true. I mean, of course, there's always a bad apple in every bunch but not just for African-Americans, for all people, right? So now you're, 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 you've been given the chance to, you know, be with people who are, you know, a little bit different from you, have different backgrounds, what have you, maybe different cultural practices, and you actually can see the uniqueness and the beauty and what they're all about, right? Instead of all this, you know, fear that's been placed in your minds by previous generations. Now, as we said, resegregation is happening in today's classrooms. Despite any gains that were made in the 70s and the 80s to desegregate schools, a series of court rulings ending mandatory desegregation programs have resulted in growing numbers of segregated schools. Did you guys know that? A study from the Civil Rights Project found that the number of schools in which students of color make up 90% or more of the student population has tripled since 1988. Today, more than 40% of Black and Latinx students attend schools where 9 out of 10 students are students of color. 
According to the Civil Rights Project study, African-American students in the South are less likely to attend a school that is majority white than about 50 years ago. In fact, the study reports the percentage of African-American students attending schools in which white students make up at least 50% of the student body dropped from 44% in 1989 to 23% in 2011. Look at that, right? Now this return to segregation is a return to the original problem, separate and unequal. Right, we were never separate and equal. That was never the case, right? More specifically, the problem is not that predominantly African-American and Latin uh, X schools exist, but rather that predominantly African-American and Latin X schools continue to face economic, social, and structural challenges that predominantly white schools do not. Most schools serving majority non-white student populations are in low-income areas and due to funding systems that rely on property taxes to finance education. These schools receive much less money. A report by Edville estimates that school districts serving mostly students of color receive 23 billion less than districts serving equal numbers of white students. Now, a system that relies so heavily on community wealth favors districts that can concentrate resources at the expense of larger populations. Average enrollment in white districts is just over 1,500 students, while non-white districts serve over 10,000 students, according to Edville. Average revenue per student in non-white school districts is about, you know, 2,200 lower than in white school districts. The exact number is $2,226 lower than in white school districts. So the effects of resegregation produce positive results um, for students of color. Just as desegregation, excuse me, produce positive results for students of color, the shift away from reintegration produces noted declines for them. So you know, on the one hand, we had some progress, but now we're kind of like dropping back a little bit. In the study, quote, ending to what end, the impact of the termination of court desegregation orders on residential segregation and school dropout rates, researcher David D. Leibowitz, he found that in districts that discontinued integration programs, dropout rates immediately jumped for African-American and Latinx students compared to those districts where programs remain intact. What are some of the strategies to address segregation? Well, much of segregation, whether in schools or in neighborhoods, faces back to a history of discriminatory policies. For example, redlining, which is the practice of denying loans to people of color, trying to purchase homes in predominantly white neighborhoods, prevented many families of color from moving into areas where there were well-funded schools, right? They kind of like kept this out. Overcoming such legacies has proven a painfully slow process. process. However, some leaders in education point to solutions that can help address problems in inequity, even if they can't change segregated housing patterns. San Antonio Independent School District's Diverse by Design program has set into place 
several initiatives to bolster integration in schools, including addressing transportation needs, building schools using a 50-50 enrollment model based on family income, redrawing attendance zone lines or eliminating them altogether, and adding specialized academic programs to encourage enrollment. Now, in addition to these solutions, educators can use classroom strategies to help offset the negative effects of segregation. Founding principal of Maya Angelou Public Charter School in Washington, D.C., Nataki Gregory argues that even though public policy and systemic racism have caused segregation, culturally relevant teaching practices, teacher coaching and strategic use of technology that help us overcome the barriers that our neighborhoods present to desegregation. In the article, quote, four ways teachers in segregated classrooms can desegregate their students' learning, unquote, Gregory presents ideas to offset the effects of classroom segregation. And here are some of them. Strategic use of technology. Use the internet and meeting platforms like Zoom in the classroom to connect with schools across the city and country while teaching students about European colonization of the Americas, for instance. Connect with other classrooms to explore the differences and similarities about what's being taught. And then follow up with discussions, exploring the different perspectives on the topic and how to discuss ideas with those holding conflicting viewpoints. You can also focus questions and activities on the world. Rather than relying on textbooks to direct activity, drive student engagement by exploring topics relevant beyond the walls of the classroom and investigating issues that students find meaningful. That's a way to make them feel at least, you know, um, a part of the lesson, you know, talk about building interests, right? You can also establish a culture of coaching in schools. Teachers need encouragement and feedback to improve their teaching practice. Coaching can offer this, and it can give teachers a chance to discuss their mindsets and discover their own racial biases that might get in the way of activating the potential of all their students. Now, transform education through leadership is something else, I guess, that we can consider, right? Tackling challenges like classroom, uh, excuse me, classroom segregation, it calls for well-prepared leaders. So to ensure that all students have access to schools where they can grow and thrive, educators must know how to disrupt the status quo with creative solutions to problems and inequities. American University offers a comprehensive degree program that cultivates skills in system change, personal leadership, social justice, and anti-racism and policy and research. Explore how a doctorate in education policy and leadership equips aspiring educational leaders to transform American education. Freedom, oh, freedom, oh, freedom over me.
Freedom by the Golden Gospel Singers. It's a post-Civil War African-American freedom song, and it is often associated with the civil rights movement. Joan Baez performed that song at the 1963 March on Washington. Okay, beautiful people, it's time for this week's inspirational story. This week's story is called The Fisherman and the Businessman. Here goes. Once upon a time, there was a businessman who was sitting on the beach in a small Italian village. As he sat, taking a brief break from the stress of his daily schedule, he saw a fisherman rowing a small boat back into the harbor. In the boat were a few large fish. Impressed, the businessman asked the fisherman, how long does it take you to catch so many fish? To which he replied, oh, not so long. 
The businessman was confused. Why don't you fish for longer to catch even more? More? He said, this is enough to feed my entire family and to even offer some to my neighbors. That's what the fisherman told the businessman. Like, what you talking about, Willis? Oh. So what do you do then for the rest of the day? Inquired the businessman. The fisherman replied, well, I usually have caught my fish by late morning, at which point I go home, kiss my wife and play with my kids. In the afternoon, I take a nap and read. In the evening, I go to the village to have a drink with my friends, play guitar, sing, and dance into the night. Putting his entrepreneurial hat on, the businessman offered a suggestion. He said, I have a PhD in business. I can help you become much more successful. From now on, you should spend longer at sea and catch as many fish as possible. When you saved enough money, buy a bigger boat to catch even more fish. From there, you'll soon be able to buy more boats, set up your own company, build a production plant to can the fish and control distribution, and move to the city to control your other branches. To this, the fisherman asked, and after that? The businessman laughs. After that, you'll be able to live like a king, take your company public, float your shares, and be rich. And after that, asked the fisherman once more, after that, you can retire, move to a house by the sea, wake up early in the morning to go fishing, then return home to play with your kids, kiss your wife, take a nap in the afternoon, and join your friends in the village to drink, play guitar, and dance into the night. Puzzled, the fisherman replies, but isn't that what I'm doing already? <laughs> our people gotta be all up in your Kool-Aid, right? Like they just think that they know everything that you need and how you need it. Yet they don't know nothing about what you're doing, right? That they just figure they have all the answers. I thought that was funny. The moral of the story is be content with what you have. Do you really need to keep pushing for more? Stress is often a choice. There's joy and peace in simplicity. Now this next song, Kings and Queens, was second single from his third studio album, There Goes Robin Simon, which was released on Columbia Records in 1973. It features background vocals from the Dixie Hummingbirds, which was a Southern Black gospel group song peaked at number two on the Billboard Hot 100. According to Billboard magazine, the lyrics of this song describes how a mother loved her son, even when he became the president. Here's Paul Simon with Loves Me Like a Rock. When I was a little boy Devil call my name. Brother, I was just a boy. I say now, who do? Ooh. Who do you think you're fooling? Brother, I'm a consecrated boy. Brother, Singer in Sunday choir. Oh, my mama loves me. She loves me. She get down on her knees. 
devil would call my name. Say now, who do, who do you think you're fooling? I'm a consummated man. Snatch a little purity. My mama loves me. She loves me. Our last song of the evening from my musical jukebox is from this American R&B group, and it was a part of the Boomerang soundtrack, which starred Eddie Murphy, along with an all-star cast, including Halle Berry. This song spent a record-breaking 13 weeks at number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, a record which was broken by Whitney Houston's 14-week number one hit, I Will Always Love You. Now, this song was the number one single of 1992 on the Billboard year-end Hot 100 singles of 1992. And it is ranked by Billboard as the sixth most successful song of the decade between 1990 and 1999. Here's End of the Road by Boys to Men. We belong together you know that I'm right Why do you play with my heart? Why do you play with my mind? You said we'd be forever You said it never died How could you love me and leave me 
kings and queens, we have come to the end of another show. I do hope that the information provided will be of help to you. Remember, it's always a good idea to do your own research, no matter what the topic is, especially if your life is involved. Thank you so much for tuning in this week, and I look forward to being with you all again next week for my season finale. Yes, it's about time to go on hiatus. So next week's episode will be the last episode of this season, but don't fret. You can always listen to previous episodes, okay? Be, be sure to follow me on um, Village Mentality on Instagram. Be sure to follow Village Mentality on Instagram. Got a little tongue tied there. I apologize. At villagementality.ckm as in Mary. 
and on Facebook at Village Mentality, the podcast. You can also catch all episodes of Village Mentality on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Radio Public, and Breaker. And I provide a link to each episode on Instagram, again, at villagementality.ckm as in Mary. And I also put a link on Facebook at Village Mentality, the podcast. You can also catch episodes of Village Mentality at theawakenedlounge.com backslash village hyphen mentality. And just remember that God has got me and he's got you too. Be blessed, beautiful people. And here's to brighter days. 